Well, let's um, turn in our Bibles to Psalm 9 and 10, if you're not there already. Uh, it'd be helpful to have that open so you can follow along. And uh, the basic theme of uh, Psalms 9 and 10 uh, are what I've entitled this sermon, which is, The Wicked Won't Win. The Wicked Won't Win. Uh, in fairly recent years, uh, the, the Marvel movies uh, have been some of the, the biggest grossing movies of all time. And I have to admit that I never really got into them, and I've not seen most of them. But one of the films that I did see in this big franchise was Avengers Infinity War. Uh, I have to admit, I didn't really enjoy the film. Uh, I didn't really know what was going on, having not seen most of the previous films. Uh, I basically went because um, my family needed me to pay for their ticket. Uh, but basically, uh, the story was that there is a wicked enemy called Thanos. Uh, he collects a bunch of stones that enable him to, to make the world, or remake the world as, as he wants to make it. Uh, and it involves him wiping out half the population of the world. And this film ends with him doing just that, including half of the superheroes in the movie. Uh, there were literally some teenage boys crying that Spider-Man was disintegrated. And I was thinking, what kind of director makes a movie end in this way? Like, the wicked are not supposed to win. Comic books, contrary to what some of you may think, are children's stories. And I was thinking, what, why would they do this? I didn't realize until later on it was part one. But it was still the end of the film. And I came out of the cinema thinking, that, what a load of rubbish. Movies are really supposed to have happy endings. The storyline is usually everything's going okay. The bad guys appear to be winning but the good guys win in the end. Or, I found out, having not understood most of the Jane Austen films of the books, if they hate each other, they'll get married at the end. In other words, it will all work out in the end. And the story of the Bible is, is kind of similar, except there's no doubt at all about the ending, Jesus wins. But we live in a world where the wicked can appear to be prospering, or rather the wicked are prospering at the moment, it seems. And we can look at God as the director of the world, and we can wonder, God, what are you doing? What is going on? How can your world be like this? Because we see much wickedness in our world, don't we? We see atrocities all the time. We see terrorism, countries being invaded, fraud, sex trafficking, the abuse of the vulnerable. The list is endless and it doesn't stop. And sometimes we wonder, will it ever end? There are world leaders, terrorist organizations, hidden online fraudsters who seem to be getting away with their crimes. We see people die and then later find out that they have got away with abuse or with murder or with all sorts of things their whole life. 
and they've died and they seem to have gotten away with it. The bad guys so often seem to be winning. Well, Psalms 9 and 10 is a a prayer of trust in God, praying and trusting that the wicked won't win, but that God would bring an end to wickedness. It's in a sense longing for the day when wickedness will be no more. And we can pray this prayer when we despair at the news, when we suffer from the effects of wickedness ourselves, or our loved ones do. And we can use it also to confess our own wickedness and turn to God for forgiveness. It's likely that Psalms 9 and 10 were originally one psalm. It seems uh, to be originally a Hebrew acrostic poem, where each letter of the Hebrew alphabet began a new line in the poem. Uh, The the, the poem, the acrostic begins in Psalm 9 and it continues into Psalm 10. You can't see that in the English versions of the Bible, but in the Hebrew Bible, uh, that's what was happening. Notice also how, how Psalm 10 has no superscription, which is the, the little bit before uh, the psalm, which is very unusual in book one in the Psalms. Notice also how many words and phrases are repeated in the two Psalms. For example, arise, Lord, the wicked, strike terror, mortals, oppressed, and other words as well. And the song seems to fit together in a kind of a V-shape, as a structure, which uh, you can see on the screen. And it goes kind of like this. There is, there is praise of God, which gives the basis for the petition, don't let the wicked win. Then there's the problem, which is the wicked are prospering. And then again, there's a petition, don't let the wicked win. And then Psalm 10 ends with praise, expressing confidence in the petition. So that Psalms 9 and 10 tend to work in this kind of v-shape that begins and ends in praise but the focus becomes this problem why are the wicked winning why does it why do they prosper and the big point for us is to trust God when the wicked appear to be prospering to pray for God to bring an end to it and as we look at this psalm it should cause us to not just judge the world ourselves and say yeah look at how wicked they are but to recognize wickedness in our own lives and to repent of it. Because it's through the prayers of his people that God works, and it is in answer to the prayers of his people that Jesus will come and make all things new and bring an end to wickedness. So this song helps us to pray against the wickedness in our world, pleading with God, don't let the wicked win. So let's dive in. First of all, we see then uh, the praise... And the first thing David praises is that the Lord is the judge of all. Uh, Praising the Lord is a right way to bring right perspective. It reminds us of God's goodness and encourages our hearts to trust him. When we're looking at the world and wondering what's going on, a good place to start actually is to turn our eyes to God and to praise him and remember who he is. And David is determined to praise God despite the wicked appearing to be winning. Notice four times in verse 1 and 2, he says the the phrase, I will. There's a determination here. So I will give thanks. I will uh, tell of all your wonderful deeds. 
I will be glad and rejoice. I will sing the praises of your name. Notice how he, he determines himself. I will do this. Notice how he gives thanks, he says, with his, his whole heart. It's not half-hearted praise. He puts himself into what he's doing. And as we remember the gospel, that Jesus Christ has come to this earth to live a perfect life, he's died in our place for our sins, he's risen from the dead, that gospel should give us a determination to sing. There's always much for us to give thanks for when we consider God. There's always much wondrous deeds to tell of. There's always much to be glad and rejoice in. There's always much to sing about God's name, to sing about who he is. Sometimes it takes determination to praise God. Sometimes we don't understand why what's going on is going on. But when we praise God, it gives us a perspective that makes us say, I don't understand this, but when I look at you, Lord, when I think about what you've done, when I see your goodness and your grace to me, I may not understand, but you are good and you are gracious. The gospel shows us that. And so let me encourage you, when you're, not just when you don't understand, but at all times, praise God. Determine in your heart to sing his praise with your whole heart, reminding yourself of God's greatness and God's goodness. And as you do that, it will give you a right perspective in praying against the wickedness in our world. Up to verse 12, we have reasons to praise God as the judge of all. And he speaks in, verses, in these verses about the wicked. So it's worth defining who the wicked are. Uh, the wicked are those who are settled in their opposition against God. They have an idea of their own autonomy. I can run my life how I want. I can run the world as I see fit. I'm going to ignore God. I'm going to go my own way. And before God intervened in our lives, that was all of us. That's who the wicked are. And in verses 3 to 6, we see examples of how God is bringing wickedness to an end. Reasons to praise him. Because the grammar, in fact, of verses 3 to 6 is actually forward-looking. So David is, is praising God for something that hasn't happened as if it has happened. He's, he's so confident that it, that it will, he's praising in faith. So in verse 3, David's enemies turn back, they stumble and perish. In verse 4, David's cause has been upheld. God sits enthroned there as judge. That's important, by the way, in this psalm. A judge sits to give sentence. And so when God is sitting here, he's sitting as the judge to give a right sentence against the wicked. In verses 5 and 6, we read of God destroying wickedness and blotting out names. This means he completely destroys the wicked so that they're not even remembered. That was a big deal, by the way, uh, in history, because the carrying on of the name was a really important thing for, for the people of this day. If their name was blotted out, it means they would be forgotten forever. Uh, we, we saw, I think, last week in Isaiah about making a name for ourselves but God says the wicked are going to have their name wiped out. They won't be remembered. 
Uh, nations here, by the way, when, it, when we read in verse 5 of the nations being uh, rebuked, it's synonymous with wicked. Uh, wicked nations, not, it's not because of their nationality that they're rebuked, but because of the wickedness that they're rebuked. And that's why the ruin in verse 6 is, is endless ruin. It's endless because the memory of them perishes. They are wicked, they will be blotted out, they will forever be forgotten and forever perish. Uh, isn't it interesting that there, these days, uh, wickedness is often filmed. It's, it's, it's on camera. Um, and, and, and wickedness can be notorious. Things that have happened are so evil. And, that it, and, and these days, those wicked acts have been filmed. For, for example, that the Holocaust is an example. Much of that was recorded. And recently, the, the attacks in Israel were filmed on GoPro cameras. But even those filmed atrocities that make us sick, one day they will be forgotten. They'll be wiped away. Not because the wicked will be forgiven if they haven't repented, but because it won't be remembered by God's people anymore. Even for the people that it's, that it's happened to. God will make it right. Well, then in verse 7, there's a change of tone. We've read what the Lord will do regarding the wicked, but here we see why David is so confident that the Lord will do it. Look at verses 7 and 8. We read, The Lord reigns forever. He has established his throne for judgment. He rules the world in righteousness and judges the people with equity. The word here translated as reigns can also be translated as sits, as in the judge. So the Lord is forever the judge who sits over his world. And it's interesting to note the contrast between the forgotten nations who are blotted out and the God who reigns forever. And notice in verse 8 that he judges rightly and he judges fairly. The wicked cannot pull the wool over his eyes. They cannot trick him. They cannot escape him. And God's not just going to let anything pass by. He reigns forever. He sits, he sees, and he always will. And in his time, a right and fair judgment will be passed on the wicked. There's nothing that God doesn't see. Nothing is hidden. We'll see that a bit further on as well. God is a judge who will judge rightly. But verses 9 and 10 praise God for being a compassionate judge as well. Notice in verse 9 um, that the Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. He's a refuge and a stronghold, a, a place of protection and safety. I mentioned, uh, I think last week, I think it was last week, um, that a refuge is a place that you can go when, um, uh, for example, an avalanche is coming down a mountain and you find a cave that you can go in and you escape the avalanche is that, that's coming. And God is that refuge. Now we suffer the effects of wickedness in our world directly and indirectly in different ways. We contribute to it ourselves with our own sin. And the consequences of our own sin can cause us major trouble when we have messed up. But there is a refuge. There is a stronghold. There is a place of safety for you, the Lord. As I said with that cave and the avalanche, 
You have to enter into it if you're going to find safety. How can we enter into the place of refuge? Look at verse 10. Those who know your name trust in you. For you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. The word to know is not just an intellectual knowledge, but it's a relationship. Those that know the name have a relationship with God. And when we know God, we, can tr- we, we, we trust God. And we know him only through Jesus. Jesus is God with us. He came to bring us into relationship with God by dying for our sins. That barrier that is between us is broken because Jesus has died in our place. And when our sins are forgiven and we follow Jesus, we know God. We are part of his family. And when we know God, we know God to be the one who never forsakes us as we seek him. I wonder, are you feeling troubled today? Get to know Jesus. He won't necessarily take all your troubles away right now, but you will have forgiveness for the past, hope for the future, and help in the present. He is our help. He is our help against wickedness against us, and he is our help by being the place of forgiveness when we have committed wickedness ourselves. He is our refuge. Now that's good news. That is news worth singing about. And in verses 11 and 12, that's what David does. He sings God's praise, and he proclaims to others what God has done. Now just look, for example, at verse 12. What has God done? For he who avenges blood remembers He does not ignore the cries of the afflicted. The avenger of blood uh, comes from the book of Numbers, chapter 35, where a member of the community was set aside to punish those guilty of murder or violence. That person was set aside for that so that there wasn't a free-for-all. It was to interrupt the cycle of violence by limiting the responsibility of judging to individuals who could retaliate rightly. And it's God who has this responsibility ultimately. He does not forget. He does not ignore the cries of the afflicted. Justice will come to those, for those who suffer. Now, of course, our greatest trouble is our sin because we face God's judgment. But Jesus has saved us from our sin. And this is what causes us most to sing and to, to share with the world. We sing of and we share the gospel that we can know God through Jesus Christ. So having praised the Lord and reminded himself of the Lord being the righteous judge over all, it leads David to be able to confidently petition. And his petition is, don't let the wicked win. Notice verse 13 begins with the petition, Lord, see. Lord, see. Uh, David is under attack and he wants God to see it. His enemies are persecuting him. And what he prays for is salvation. So look at verses 13 and 14. Have mercy and lift me up from the gates of death, that I may declare your praises in the gates of daughter Zion and there rejoice in your salvation. So he asks the Lord for mercy, to lift him up, from the gates of death, so that he can praise the gates, praise in the gates of Zion. 
Uh, Zion is the dwelling place of God. Uh, For David, that was Jerusalem. And the phrase daughter Zion speaks of Jerusalem because cities were often spoken of as daughters. And what we see here is a lovely picture of how God actually saves us from our sin. So Ephesians chapter 2 says, Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. So if you like, we've been saved from death, from the gates of death, to be lifted up to the praise God in the gates of Zion. And that's why we're saved. We're saved from our sins so that we can praise God forever. We can praise God for his mercies every single day. Not only for our salvation, but for all that he has done for us. Let's not forget that God's not only called us to pray in petition, but also to praise. And we can thank him for answering our prayers. But in verses 15 to 17, we're reminded in this petition of how justice for God is normal. Justice for God is is normal. Notice in verse 16, God is known by his acts of justice. We see how God has ordered his world in such a way that there is a kind of boomerang effect that we saw mentioned in the seventh psalm. A boomerang effect, that is, the the wicked act in wickedness and it boomerangs back, it comes back at them. So, uh, We see here, nations are caught in the pit they have dug and feet in the net they have hidden. And the wicked are ensnared by the work of their own hands. And in verse 17, the wicked go to the realm of the dead. They've forgotten God. And it's true that as as one writer points out, violent men tend to die by violence. The greedy tend to suffer discontentment. Viewers of pornography damage their sex lives. Gossips tear down their own character as they spread stories and others think less of them. It comes back on us, our own wickedness. However, whilst nations may forget God, God does not forget the needy. Those who need his help, those that know him and trust him, they have a hope that will never perish. We see that most clearly in the the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In him... We have eternal life and a certain hope of the resurrection of the dead and the new life to come. And this helps us in times of trouble. There is a day coming when we will be raised to new life in a physical body, in a new world where wickedness will be no more. There is hope always for the afflicted as we trust in Christ. Finally, in verses 19 and 20, David prays, Arise, Lord. Do not let mortals triumph. Let the nations be judged in your presence. Strike them with terror, Lord. Let the nations know that they are only mortal. To arise here is a call to action. Uh, Specifically, actually, again, in the book of Numbers, when uh, uh, Moses would say, arise, he, he was calling on God's people to go out into battle. And when God's called to arise, he's called to go to war to fight for his people. And he wants the Lord to not allow mortals to triumph as they appear to be doing. The word for mortals is the same word used in Psalm 8 verse 4. That word we looked at last week, enosh, referring to the frailty 
of man, especially in comparison to the Lord. You know, the, the, these, these weak, pathetic people in comparison to the Lord, they, they appear to be winning, he's saying. Lord, arise, strike them with terror. They're nothing to you, Lord. And that, that to, to strike with terror is to make people see the power of the Lord. Uh, when the Lord was bringing plagues on Egypt, the magicians eventually said this to Pharaoh. The magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen just as the Lord had said. So terror was struck into the magicians. Pharaoh, he didn't get it. But the magicians saw they were only mortal. Similarly, Rahab uh, said this uh, in Joshua. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts sank and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Do you see there the magicians and Rahab? And the people in Jericho, they saw the terror of the Lord and they realized they were only mortal. They were struck with fear. The terror of the Lord taught the people their own mortality. And I think, and I say this carefully, but this is a good prayer to pray for the unsaved. That they would see the terror of the Lord so that they would know their mortality and turn to him. I think when we're praying this for our families, um, personally, I include, be, be gentle, Lord. But do what it takes that they would turn to you. That's the prayer here. You see? Do what it takes that they would turn to you from their wickedness so they won't face the judgment of God. It's a frightening prayer, but it's worth coming to know Jesus, whatever terror brings them there. For the terror to come from rejecting him is, is far, far worse. Well, as we move into Psalm 10, we come then to the problem that David has. He's praised God for being judge. That's led him to petition God, don't let the wicked win. But now, he seems to be, at, what, what, what he sees with his experience seems to be at odds with what he's been singing thus far. There's a problem, the wicked prosper. So we, we see the complaint in verse 1. Do you notice it there? Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Uh, that, that question, why, Lord, why? It's a very uh, common uh, petition in the Psalms. It's very familiar. Why, Lord, why? Or similarly, we'll see in other Psalms, how long, Lord? It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a groaning. These words, actually, they help us to pray. They help us to know that we can ask God these kinds of questions when we don't understand why the world seems to be full of wickedness and why the wickedness prosper. When our hearts ache at the impact of sin in our world, it is okay to say to God, why, Lord? 
The Psalms give us permission to do just that. In verses 2 to 11, we see then a description of the wicked. We see, first of all, their arrogance and then their aggressiveness. One of which, by the way, leads to the other. Attitude leads to action. So in verse 2, the wicked hunts the weak. It's always the weak and the vulnerable that pay the heaviest price for the schemes of wickedness in our world. The most vulnerable are the ones most exploited. The weak countries are ones that are invaded, not the ones with nuclear weapons. I mean, for example, you can, you can be sure that Ukraine would never have been invaded and would have been left well alone if they had nuclear weapons, right? It's the weak that are exploited by the strong. Then in verse 3, the wicked boast about the cravings of his heart. Uh, we, we see this today when people parade sin on the television, on film, on social media, especially sexual cravings, greed, and drunken exploits. People boast about these things and laugh about these things. In fact, in verse 3, we read how greed by the wicked is blessed. It's seen as a good thing. In our culture, we see that attitude whenever we, we see the attitude of whoever has the most stuff wins. The more you have, the better your life must be. Greed is blessed. And I think we have to be careful as Christians. It can easily creep into our lives. If, if we're watching the boastings of the world all the time and the, the so-called blessings of the wicked, we can be trapped into believing that those things are blessed ourselves. In verse 4, we see how the wicked revile God and how the wicked man does not seek God. He does not think of God. God isn't even in the wicked man's thoughts. He is uncaring about, about righteousness. He wants to be his own master. And so he does what's right in his own eyes, regardless of the impact on others. God is not in his mind at all. And verse 5 gets to the crux of David's problem. Look at, at verse 5. It says there, his ways are always prosperous. Despite rejecting God, despite sneering at those who challenge his autonomy, he is prosperous. He's loving life. Life seems to be good rejecting God. Why, Lord? How can the wicked seem to have it so good? How can they get away with it, Lord? How can life without you seem so wonderful? And the attitude of that wicked man is summed up in verse 6. He says to himself, nothing will ever shake me. He swears, no one will ever do me harm. He thinks he can live his life and there's no consequence for him ignoring God. And I think there is a challenge here for all of us, but I want to just say a particular challenge to our young people who think that life will just go on forever because it feels like that when you're young and you feel strong when you're young and young people are brave and courageous and, and do daring things and think, oh, I'll get away with it. Notice verse 6. He says to himself, nothing will ever shake me. He swears no one will ever do me harm. It's a description of the wicked who God will judge. You cannot get away with ignoring God forever. And perhaps there are some here tonight who think like this. Life seems to be going just fine without God. We'll see shortly how you will be shaken by God eventually. And after the arrogance of the wicked in verses 2 to 6, we see then the aggression of the wicked 
in verses 7 to 10, and, and one leads to the other. Uh, so in verse 7, he has aggressive words. This verse actually is used by Paul in Romans chapter 3, verse 14, in a case that he makes to show how all humanity have been unrighteous in God's sight and how we need to be made right only through Jesus. But we live in a world of aggressive language, don't we? There's much swearing and, and coarseness and anger and shouting. Just go to any football ground and you'll see what I mean, right? Or drive into Birmingham in the rush hour and you might not hear it with your music really loud, but if you just look at the faces of the people shouting, maybe it's just my driving, uh, but it's true, isn't it? There is an aggressiveness. But sadly these days too, just listen on the school playground and you will hear the aggressive language. It's very sad. And I say that not just in secondary school, um, I hear it on the playground in primary school as well. And then in verses 8 to 10, we see how the wicked man lies in wait for the innocent and the helpless. And we see this kind of wickedness today too, don't we? People committing fraud, often going after the elderly and the vulnerable. We see online predators trying to arrange abusive relationships with children and teenagers. We see the wickedness of abortion. We see the abuse of the disabled and those without a voice. We see the undermining of marriage through either a supporting marriage that's not between a man and a woman or making divorce so easy that it's like cancelling a phone contract. And this is wickedness because we are reaping a terrible cost of fatherlessness in homes that damages children and societies. But we must be careful, though, that we don't think that this kind of wickedness is just out there somewhere because we can ignore the poor and needy. We can ignore the wickedness that goes on right under our nose and not help. We need to watch out for this ourselves. I would add in this that every single time that you look at any pornography at all, you are acting like the person that lies in wait in verses 8 to 10. Because in that industry, women are abused horrendously. And many of those women are the poor and afflicted who feel they have no other choice. In fact, there is wickedness in all of our hearts. And we need to repent of it, don't we? We must never have the attitude of verse 11. Look at verse 11. He says to himself, God will never notice. He covers his face and never sees. God sees everything. God knows all. He is never, ever covering his face. Many people have this kind of attitude. Uh, it's definitely the attitude, I think, of, of perpetrators of, of sexual abuse. They think they can get away with it because no one will see and the abused won't say anything. Well, if the abused don't say anything, God definitely sees. He sees all and he will bring justice. Never have the attitude that God does not see. And Christian, don't have the attitude of thinking, well, you know what, I can repent at leisure. I can do this and then repent. That's the same attitude as the wicked. A true Christian cannot maintain the attitude of verse 11. A true Christian repents of their sin. And so let me encourage you tonight to repent of your sin. Bring it to the light of God and ask him for forgiveness and help 
to live for him. So the problem David has is that the wicked are doing just fine. And so to deal with this problem, which he knows is wrong, David prays again, don't let the wicked win. So notice the call in verse 12 is the same as chapter 9, verse 19. He says, arise. So he's calling on God to go to war against the wicked. The lifting of the hand is another way of calling for action. He asks God not to forget the helpless. By the way, uh, this is a, 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 a good thing to think of as a church. The church is one of the ways that God remembers the helpless. As a church, we seek to help those in our number who are in need. And in doing so, we are part of the answer to the prayer for the helpless. We need to care well for those who are in need among us. That is part of answering the prayer of not letting the wicked win. Uh, In verse 13, we see another complaint. Why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself, he won't call me to account? The complaint is that the wicked revile God, that is, they speak against him, and the wicked say, nothing will happen to me. They think they'll get away with their sin. And so in verses 14 and 15, David says, let this not be so. He knows that God sees the trouble of the afflicted, He knows that God considers their grief and does something about it. And he knows God helps the fatherless. He mentions the fatherless because the fatherless are vulnerable because they have no one to provide for them. That's why the fatherless are often mentioned. In in this culture, there was no option for the women to go and, and earn on behalf of their families. And they were the most vulnerable. And today, just because women are more likely to be able to work does not mean that fatherlessness is not a huge problem in our culture. It is a huge problem. And as a church, the men of our church need to be fathers to the fatherless in the way that we act like men of the Bible, men of God, in the way that we are examples. I remember growing up in my church, I'm so thankful for the men of the church where I grew up, that they were fathers to me, that they showed me Christ and Christ-likeness. And how to be a father. We need to be that in our church. A father to the fatherless. There's more we could say, but time is moving on. Uh, In verse 15, uh, the petition ends with a plea to break the arm of the wicked man. That's to, to render him powerless. In verse 12, God calls, is called to lift his hand. In verse 15, God is called to make the wicked unable to lift theirs. That's what kind of uh, what's going on. He's asked to bring the evildoer to account. To make the claim of verse 13, God will never bring me to account, null and void. Will God answer this prayer? Will wickedness end? Will the wicked be brought to account? Even the stuff that would not otherwise be found out? Even when it appears God is hiding his face and closing his eyes, will it be brought to account? David is confident the answer is yes. And in this confidence, he ends the song as he begun with confident praise. God is king forever. Notice that in verse 16, there is a declaration. The Lord is king forever and ever. Wicked people will perish. Evil nations and their rulers will not prosper in the end. The Lord is king. And, in, and the Lord in verse 17 does hear the cry of the afflicted. He, he, and and notice, just notice verse 17, this lovely phrase, you encourage them. 
you listen to their cry. Isn't that lovely? He, he encourages the weak and the afflicted. How does he encourage them? He tells them the gospel. He tells them that he is a God who listens. And he's listened to the greatest need of our hearts, the need to be in relationship with God through the provision of Jesus dying for our sins and rising from the dead. Never think God doesn't listen. And whenever you wonder, is God listening? Look at the cross and the empty tomb. He listens to the cry of the afflicted. And as you look at the empty tomb, take that as the assurance that there is a day coming when wickedness will end. He listens to the cry of the afflicted. Let the gospel encourage you. May the words of the gospel put courage into you when you are feeling the effects of wickedness in our world. May the gospel cause you to praise God when days are dark. In the gospel, the fatherless and the oppressed are put in church families that provide for and care for them. They are defended. So we have help now, and we look forward to the day when wickedness ends. Isn't that wonderful? That's the gospel. We'll look at the end of verse 18. So that mere earthly mortals will never again strike terror. Because of the gospel, because Jesus has died for our sins and is risen from the dead, no mere earthly mortal, no mere man can ever terrorize us again. They can try, but we are always in the hands of Jesus no matter what happens. Nothing can take us away from him. They may take our lives. They may scare us. It may feel terrifying. But all they can do is quicken us to glory where we shall be forever with the Lord. When I watched Infinity War at the time... I did not realize I was in part one of a film. It was the middle of the movie, and there was a plan to bring everything together in the end so that the wicked did not win. I didn't watch the second film. <laughs> I never saw part two. Um, by the time part two came out, my family were old enough to go on their own, and they didn't really necessarily want Dad to go with them. But I'm told it ended okay. One day I might see it. But I do know how the Bible ends. And so friends, it may seem that the wicked are winning, but we are only in the middle of the movie. Some films actually are so good that an audience may stand at the end of the film and applaud the director. Well, in God's story, at the end, we will see his good plan and his amazing plot that will result in us praising him forever. And we will look at him and say, what an amazing director. What an awesome king. And praise him. Regardless of how hard our part of the story may well have been, we will praise him forever for being the king who brings all things to a wonderful end. The end is good. Jesus wins. And his people are safe forever worshipping him as their king. And so may the gospel give you hope. May it cause you to sing, even in days of darkness. May it cause you to pray against wickedness, to pray for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven, and to pray, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. Well, I'm going to stop there. But before we sing, um, we're going to pray together uh, the Lord's Prayer. 
asking him to, among other things, be glorified, to bring his kingdom, and to deliver us from evil. And he will answer this prayer for us. So let's stand together. Uh, We'll stand as we pray. And then after we've prayed, uh, we'll sing our final hymn, which reminds us that he is the king forevermore. So let's pray together. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.
For Jesus says, surely I am coming quickly. Even so, come Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.